0: Hey guys, welcome back to Revive School. It's a big day. Here we are, wrapping up the Minor Prophets. Yes, we're jumping into a new week, but the reality is, is we're finishing up 12 of the books from the Minor Prophets. We have 10 segments. This is our ninth segment before we jump into the book of Revelation. Now, you know, it's been fun. We've got Josh in the studio. So Josh, thanks for teaching last week. We've got Kevin. We've got Rich. We've got TJ. Guys, 39 books today. 39 books from the Old Testament and I remember when this whole, this crazy journey started. And it started because of Matthew five seventeen. 17. Okay, when we look at Matthew five seventeen, Matthew five seventeen, here, here's the reality is that Jesus is talking about this language, right? And the scripture says, don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. He says, I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. Have we not seen that in all of the book of the minor, all, all the minor prophets? It's kind of like constantly, whether you're in Hosea, whether you're in Joel or Amos or Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Kevin, I always get to this one. Uh, <laughs> Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Then you jump into Zephaniah. Then you jump into Kevin. Zephaniah. Haggai. And then you got, we'll go to uh, Zechariah. Oh, that was a lot right there. The point is this. In every one of those paintings, every one of these books, you see Christ. You see the Messiah in every one of these. You know, I just want to just keep saying this. I have greatly, uh, you know, spent time in the Word, spent time in prayer, and at the same time, God has used men like John MacArthur, Warren Wearsby, Tom Constable, uh, folks like this Nelson's Commentary that have helped really, I, I have no problem saying this, I don't know about the background until I study this. It's not like I've gone and studied and dug under the grounds and tried to figure out the archaeology. Like, I don't, I don't understand all that stuff. But when you take time to study the outside picture of all this, man, it really comes together. And so, you know, all of those people, we have had no claim in saying that we've got this original, right? It's just us just going through this. And that's kind of the beauty of this. So when you look at the title of the minor prophet Malachi, yes, it comes from the actual prophet himself. And, you know, this is the last book. I mean, we've already referenced this in the minor prophets. And God closes, think about this, God closes uh, the canon. You realize this, the 39 books, before we get to the, before we get to the New Testament, God closes the Old Testament, the Torah and the Tanakh with Malachi. Like this is the last thing that they hear is that crazy? This is the last thing that they hear. And then, Kevin, you have a period of 400 years. It's just quiet before you begin to see more. And so you have to have this as a lens. Remember when we're talking about Peter and Peter's writing his last letter? You know, what would you say if this is your last letter? This is the last letter. This is the last letter in the Old Testament to the Jewish people. So this is the context that we want us to have. I do love Malachi. It means the Lord's messenger. The Lord's messenger. The Jewish tradition, just so you know, MacArthur says this, identifies uh, uh, Malachi as a member of the great synagogue. Do you remember what the great synagogue was a precursor to, Kevin? Uh, The Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin. So I think that's kind of an interesting picture that you see here. Now, as it begins to unfold about the date, Kevin, if you'll throw up the kings and the prophets, the date of of this prophecy points to the late fifth century. Most likely, okay, this is kind of interesting during nehemiah's return to Persia, okay, so they would estimate the time frame possibly four thirty three four twenty four b c you find this in nehemiah five fourteen if you want to just go there, Kevin, this is a lot of the perspective that uh theologians would have about when this was written nehemiah five uh scripture says verse fourteen, furthermore, from the day King Artaxerxes appointed me. Okay, Nehemiah, to be their governor in the land of Judah. From the twentieth year until his thirty-second year, twelve years, I and my associates never ate from the food allotted to the governor. So this would be the time frame that they're saying maybe was, was written. Now sacrifices were being made, just so you guys know, at the actual temple. So we know that what, what, just state the obvious, there's a temple. Right? So Kevin, when we're looking at Malachi, what's already happened? temple's done. temple's already done. So you know that because now if you go, go to Malachi 1, 7 through 10, again, we're just kind of giving you a backdrop, then we'll come back. By presenting defiled food on my altar, you ask, how have we defiled you? Okay, so do you see this? There's this language of that offerings are already taking place. If you go to verse 8. They have this question and, t- question and answer time. You know, when you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? So there's this language, right, Kevin, of presenting the offerings, which means you know that the temple's there. So Malachi, in all this, this is kind of a time frame, okay? Sacrifices were being made at the second temple. The second temple was called Zerubbabel's temple. First one is Solomon's temple, then you got Zerubbabel's temple. Then it went into Herod's temple, then 70 AD, it's gone. After 70 AD, they're kind of like, dude, we, we need a temple, right? That's that language that we've been talking about in the Minor Prophets. This expectation that it could be, yes, they're going to build a third temple, possibly, for the Antichrist. Not really, but that's where the Antichrist is going to defile everything, right? And then there's possibly then an Ezekiel temple or the Millennial Temple that's going to take place. And then there's another layer, Right? It could be after the millennial temple, even the new heaven and new earth temple, which is then Christ himself. (laughs) So all of these images that you have here, when we're talking about the temple, we're talking about the second temple, okay, that sacrifices were being take place. Now, remember, the second temple was finished in 516 BC, so clearly we know that it was done. In the process, many years had passed. You have to understand that since 516, and now if we're running into 433 to 424, we're that's a lot of time for the people to mess up, <laughs> right? Don't you think that's a lot of time? Like, oh, I came to know the Lord, praise God. And then about four weeks later, they're already forgetting that. You know, in this context, the temple's there and they're clearly, clearly that the priests have already, and this is what MacArthur says, and it's very accurate in 1, six through 2, nine. The priests are already becoming complacent and corrupt. In Malachi's time, the priesthood is clearly already turning away from the Lord. The focus is, Josh, you talked about the idols. The focus is on themselves, focus on other things rather than the presence of God. There was social injustice that was taking place. It's crazy. All of the captives are now set free. They're walking into, there's a temple. They can experience the presence of God and they don't care. That's Malachi's message. Now, just as a backdrop, Nehemiah, okay, and MacArthur says it well, they came to Jerusalem. Nehemiah came to Jerusalem in 445 B.C., to rebuild the wall and return to Persia in 433 B.C. He later returned then back to Israel in 424 B.C. Okay, He's flipping back and forth in 424 to deal with the sins that Malachi described. The sins that Nehemiah is talking about in Nehemiah 13:6 is the things that Malachi is talking about. You kind of have to wonder if Malachi is like, man, hey guys, Zechariah, good try. I hope they listen to me mentality. I mean, that's kind of the mentality. So it is likely, I want you to understand this. This is really key. MacArthur says it this way. It is likely that Malachi was written during the period of Nehemiah's absence. Because Nehemiah was a strong leader. During his absence, almost a century after Haggai and Zechariah began to prophesy. Just like that. We're talking about foreign marriages, not not giving to the Lord, social injustice, focusing on corrupt priests. Sounds like we're just doing it all over again. Those crazy Italians. (laughs) 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 Uh, Just kidding. It's Malachi, not Malachi. (laughs) So in this process, here's some more of the background. You have... Almost 50,000, 50,000 exiles that have returned to Judah from Babylon. The temple has been rebuilt. Zerubbabel and the sacrificial system is in place. Ezra, okay, has returned in 458 BC, followed by Nehemiah. And then after the uh, being back in the land of the Palestine for a century, everything, you guys, and I like this. This is where I want to go. There's a hard uh, heartedness towards the Lord. So when we're talking about Zechariah yesterday you know, the day before in chapter 12 and chapter 14, that eventually the Jewish people are going to turn to the Lord. Do you realize how long it's going to take for them to turn to the Lord? Do you realize that this is going to be ongoing until the fullness of the Gentiles takes place? Until the gospel is advanced to all of the nations and everybody has had a chance to hear about the Messiah. Until that happens, they're not going to get it. And if they do get it, it's a very, very small percentage, at least less than 1% uh, of of people in all of Israel that are Jewish actually know Yeshua. That's not a big number. I'm thankful for that number, but that's not a big number. And I think that's the reality. That's the perspective that we really, really need to have. And Malachi, he rebukes them, he condemns them, and he calls them to repentance. Can you imagine being Nehemiah returning from Persia? <laughs> He's coming back in 424 BC and what does he do? He rebukes them for abuses in the temple and the priesthood. The whole Sabbath rest, they don't care. For unlawful divorce of Jewish wives, they don't care. All of this, just, it's like a, a restart needs to happen. Here's what's crazy, though, and I love I love this line. Listen to this. John MacArthur says, as over 2,000 years of Old Testament history takes place, since Abraham concluded, none of the glorious promises of Abrahamic, Davidic, and the new, new, new covenant, okay, new covenants have been fulfilled in their ultimate sense. None of those have, have been fulfilled completely. Is that true? Absolutely. They haven't been completed. Why? Because he hasn't come back yet. Malachi wrote um, a major prophecy in the Old Testament. When he delivered that God's message of judgment on Israel was for sin, (laughs) and MacArthur says it this way, and God's promise that one day in the future, we know this, when the Jews repent is when the Messiah returns. That's it. The message of Malachi says, guys, it's not going to happen until he comes back. And so that's why you have the 400 years of Divine silence, quietness. 400 years after Malachi, before what, Kevin? Before Matthew. And so all they hear is this message of Malachi's condemnation. Hence, John the Baptist enters the scene. Isn't that a cool picture of like, John the Baptist then carries a torch that Malachi passed off. And that's where we want to just begin to unpack uh, Malachi 1, 2, 3, and 4. Yeah, we got four chapters to do. and We'll see how far we make it. But in Malachi 1, what you're going to see in the first five verses is really, it's, it's a crazy picture. I want to give you a picture of how Malachi communicates because it's really special. Malachi 1, uh, 2, 3, 4, Kevin, and 5. It's this picture of the love of God really for Israel. He says, I've loved you, says the Lord. But then you ask, well, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I love Jacob. Like there's this counter of, and I hated your brother, but I loved you. That's really what we're after. I hated Esau. He turned, I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his in- inheritance to the desert jackals. Like this is the process. And in fact, in verses four and five, and just so you know, in Genesis twenty-two, twenty-five, 25, he clearly even says, even from the point of the womb, I made a distinction. That's how much I've loved you. Verses four through five, God then talks about his dealing with Esau. Though Edom says we've been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says this. They will build, but I will demolish. They'll be called a wicked country. The people the Lord has cursed forever. Verse five, your own eyes will see this and you you yourselves will say the Lord is great even beyond the borders of Israel. I mean, what you're going to begin to see now, even when you jump into verse six and on, you'll begin to see that the priests are going to get in trouble now. Remember, we've already done a big summary, but now you're going to be seeing it unpacked. He's talking about he loves Israel. And now he's going to say, but Israel, your priest, you've really, you've really messed up. Look at the interrogation in verse six. A son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I'm a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's your fear of me? You don't care. It says Yahweh of hosts to your priests who despise my name. Yet you ask these silly, uh, sarcastic questions like a kid. Well, how have we despised your name? Like they're playing this game. You have feared me. I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. It's what he does over and over again. Kevin, he does it in verse seven again. God just says, look, you've defiled everything by presenting defiled food on my altar. And you ask, how have we defiled you? Like it's a constant theme of a little kid playing ignorant. And God calls him out on it. When you say the Lord's table is contemptible. In other words, I see clearly what you're doing. In verse 8, God then begins to describe, like, this is a holy process. When you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Like, this is not what I'm asking for. Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or show you favor? In other words, if you can't even take it to your governor, why would you bring it to me? This is not a commonplace thing that you have to present. This must be holy. And I don't you remember? I just want to be like, look, I sent you in 70 years of captivity because your knucklehead parents couldn't figure this out and now you're doing the same thing. And now you're doing it again and again. Oh, here it is. What I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's crazy, man. He says in verse nine, and this is a really drastic, and I like what J. Vernon McGee says, their hearts are polluted. Now as for God's favor, will he be gracious to us? Since this has come from your hands, will he show any of you Favor, asks the Lord of hosts. No way, man. The doors are closed in verse 10. Scripture says this, I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so you'd no longer kindle a useless fire in my altar. I'm going to go there. Uh, I think there's some churches that need to shut their doors. We play these games because it looks good, folks. Programs don't imply that you're welcoming the presence of God. I think sometimes God says, you're confusing the people. Just shut the doors. I'm not pleased with you. Now, are there pleasing congregations in America? Are there pleasing congregations in other countries? Absolutely. But I have to wonder sometimes if God looks down and, and just says, I just wish they'd close their doors. They're just playing games. I'm not pleased with you. And I'll accept no offering from your hands. Just close the doors why because in verse 11 this is why you're you're ruining my name for my name will be great among the nations from the rising of the sun to its setting incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations if you don't want to live according to this close the doors I have a reputation he says I have a name and you're giving the wrong witness to Gentiles because of the way you're living and I've already given you a chance after chance after chance. Verse 12, the scripture just says, but you are profaming it within you. When you say the Lord's table is defiled and its product, this food is contemptible. Uh, in Verse 13, it kind of paints this picture of this backslidden condition. And so because of this, you actually become bored with God. Because it becomes so backslidden, God's boring to them. And in verse 14, you offer this corrupt, lame, sick offering, as J. Verda McGee says. And so that's chapter one. When you jump into chapter two, here's the deal. This is crazy. Priests are going to be judged because of everything that they've been doing. And in verse seven, Levi becomes a messenger for the Lord. Verse seven, this is what we're talking about here. And then the Levites have caused, in verse eight, people to sin. So this priesthood is causing some issues. And so now people are in verses 10 through 17, they're being rebuked literally for their social sins. And all of this builds and all of this builds about all of their social sins, which takes us to Malachi chapter 3. In Malachi chapter 3, it says this in verse 1. It says, see, I'm going to send my messenger and he'll clear the way before me. Now, right there at that point. okay, you can just put a slash right after that word because he's talking about John the Baptist. I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. You guys, this language of Malachi 3 should get every one of us just giddy. Like the end of the Old Testament says, I'm going to send somebody ahead of me. Me, meaning Christ. <laughs> and he's going to pave the way. You guys know this language. Matthew eleven ten, 10, Mark 1, 2, Luke 7, 27, John the Baptist. Kevin, just go there, will you please? Matthew eleven ten. 10. He is preparing the way. Matthew eleven ten 10, it says this. It says, this is the one it's written about. Look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. Malachi writes about John the Baptist. And then the Lord says, then you'll seek. Well, then the Lord you will seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you desire. See, he's coming. <laughs> The Lord himself is going to show up, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? I think, Josh, you referenced that day of the Lord. It's going to be weird. There's going to be so much that comes at us. Who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a cleansing lie. He'll be like a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah... And Jerusalem will please the Lord as in the days of old and years gone by. In other words, when the priesthood and the people are cleansed and purged, this is what's taking place. When this takes place, you guys <laughs> uh, it'll actually be a pleasing to the Lord. Verse five, man, I don't want to miss this. I, I just I feel like there's there's a lot here. I, like we're talking about you guys about this ultimate picture in verse three, about he'll be like a refiner and purifier. So we're talking about Christ. We're talking about what he goes through as his sacrifice. He says in verse five, I'll come to you in judgment and I'll be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the widow and the fatherless and cheat the wage earner and against those who deny justice to the foreigner. They, they don't fear me, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, I need you guys to either prepare yourself or utter destruction is coming. That's the picture. And he says in verse 6, because I, Yahweh, have not changed, (laughs) you descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. In other words, I'm a God who keeps my promises. Because of that, I'm going to save your rear. That's what he's talking about. He says, I'm going to keep my promises in Numbers 25 and 1 Samuel and Jeremiah I'm merciful and I'm I'm patient. He continues on in verse seven. And then here's where you see really three major things. In seven, uh, Kevin, seven and eight, you begin to see how they're robbing God. Since the days of your fathers, you have turned from my statutes. You've not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you. But you ask, how can we return? There's There's these questions that they love to ask. Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? You ask, how do we rob God? by making the payments of the 10th and the contributions, by not making the payments of the 10th and the contributions. And if you are, you're going through the rituals. You're going through the motions. Just close the doors. Verse nine, you're suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. And so not only are you robbing God, now look at this, you're robbing yourselves, as it says. Warren Wearsby, I love how he paints this picture. Verse 10, bring the full 10th into the storehouse. You guys have heard some of this before. So that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. Okay, if there is what we would consider a uh, how do I put this, a fruit of repentance. If there's not coming before the Lord, then guess what? The storehouses are empty. So he says in verse 11, I'll rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and the vine in your your field will not fail to produce fruit. In in other words, if there's true honesty and integrity, guys, I'm with you, I'm for you, I'm going to overwhelm you with fruit. And because of that, because you're robbing yourselves, I can't pour it into you, then what happens? Then all the nations will consider you fortunate for you will be a delightful, delightful land. In other words, if you go through this process, people will see that you're blessed. If you don't do this, they'll be like, look at that little weird country. <laughs> look at that country that doesn't look to the Lord. So not only are you robbing God, not only are you robbing yourselves, you're missing out on the blessing. And then in verses 12, really just 12, you're, you're actually robbing others. As Warren Wiersbe says. And so in verse 13, it says, your words against me are harsh. Says the Lord, yet you ask, what have, what have we spoken against you? He said, It's useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of hosts? So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. Praise God, though, for verse 16. At that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another Hey, hey guys, shh, listen, we need to talk. And the Lord took notice and he listened to this little group, this little remnant. So a book of rem- remembrance was written before him for those who feared Yahweh and had a high regard for his name. So not everybody functioned in like this. There's this small little, little faithful remnant that wanted to serve the Lord and God says, I've got them. They'll be mine, he says in verse 17, says the Lord of hosts, a special possession. This is that treasure. On the day I'm preparing, I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. This is different language, you guys, than the other one saying, what have we said? What are you talking about? Well, I don't, we haven't, have we done anything? Like this is the, la- total different language. And that's why he says in 3.18, so again, you'll see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Would you rather close the door or would you worship him with integrity and honesty? Because God clearly sees your heart. Go ahead, test me. If this is real, I'll pour it out on you. <laughs> Isn't that an awesome picture? Just try me. Try me. See if you come back, if I'll pour this out. And then in Malachi 4, this really goes to our word. This goes to our phrase. This goes to wrapping up all of the Old Testament. In verse one, you see this crazy prediction, you guys, about the day of the Lord, this tribulation that's going to take place. In fact, there's a, a, a very specific, detailed description for indeed the day is coming, burning like a furnace when all the arrogant and everybody who commits wickedness will become stubble the coming day will consume them, says the Lord of hosts, not leaving them root or branches. We're going to get to this mini's painting in a second here because I believe it's incredible. In verse two, it says Christ then, okay, it doesn't say Christ in my head though it does, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go out and look at this, play, playfully jump. Josh, you're here. You'll, You know you want to. You'll play, we don't have time. You'll playfully jump like calves from the stall. So our phrase of the picture of Christ is that he is the son of righteousness. And it's S-U-N. And Mindy's painting has a sunflower. And I feel like you guys, if you fear my name, if you fear the name of the Lord, the son of righteousness is going to rise with healing in its wings. And you'll go out and you'll get to experience the goodness of the Lord. Feel like you want to just say, Try me. <laughs> he wants to bring in a new day. He wants to bring in like a freshness to, the, to your start. And then in verse 3, it says this You will trample the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I am preparing. He continues on in verse 4. He says, Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances I commanded him at Oreb for all of Israel. And then finally in 5 and 6, this is awesome. We've already talked about John the Baptist. And now he says, look, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So right before you guys, in this tribulation, God's going to send the prophet Elijah. That's what it says. <laughs> and then look what happens in verse 6. One of the most unique pictures of a, of a revival. That's what Mindy has right here. And he'll turn the hearts of fathers to their children. And the hearts of children to their fathers, there will be a spirit of unity in families because the Son of Righteousness has come. Otherwise, if that doesn't happen, if He doesn't come, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Folks, this is the book of Malachi. And basically, you have two options in this book if you're a Jewish people. This is what I see. You have people that can actually uh, not turn to the Lord live according to your idols, turn away from your wives and begin to not give offerings. Or you could be the remnant that's saying, hey guys, we need to fear the Lord. And if we fear the Lord and we recognize that the son of righteousness is coming, he says, I, I, not only I'm going to pour out a blessing upon you, but you're going to restore families and you're going to restore our hearts and our faith back to him. And it all comes from the son of righteousness. All right, guys, thus concludes the Old Testament. Praise God. Uh, Guess what? Tomorrow, we'll start the book of Revelation. Have a great day. Thanks.